Hello and welcome to another edition of Resistance TV. While Labour and Tory MPs continue to support NATO's proxy war in Ukraine and sanctions against Russia, health workers have started taking industrial action in the face of the rising cost of living. The soaring prices that led to this industrial action have been driven in large measure by the war in Ukraine. But rather than engaging in diplomacy to bring about peace, the political class are intensifying their bellicose rhetoric. And today, MPs have been fawning over Zelensky in Westminster Hall, who called on them to supply Ukraine with British fighter jets. Meanwhile, the government and the official Labour opposition are not prepared to use public money to settle the NHS dispute, but they are happy to use public money to prolong the war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, members of the Royal College of Nursing are taking part in industrial action for the first time in its history. But have the unions left it too late? Well, joining me to consider that question is Dr. Bob Gill. Bob's a GP and a long-time NHS campaigner, and he produced the seminal documentary, The Great NHS Heist. Bob, welcome to the show again. Thanks. You've been uh, a guest on a few occasions now, a friend of the show. I'm pleased you've spurred the time to join us again this evening. Um, these strikes, I mean, they're an encouraging sign, aren't they, do you think? Hi, Chris. Yeah, um, it is encouraging, but it, it depends on whether they're effective or not. Uh, as, as you know, um, a decade of austerity has led to doctors and nurses and NHS staff in general suffering a 20, you know, quarter reduction in their real term wages. So there's plenty to be aggrieved about. But not only that, the NHS is on its knees. It was on its knees before the pandemic struck. We had growing waiting lists. Uh, just over six and a half million on the waiting list. Uh, we had lost 25,000 hospital beds and there was a big hole in the workforce. And I, I think what's driving the staff, uh, certainly people I speak to, is not only them struggling to pay the bills, but they are now working in a an endemically dysfunctional NHS and unable to provide safe care, leave work with job satisfaction because there are so many holes in the service now. Do you think is it too late then to secure a fair deal for NHS staff and, and patients? I mean, what can we do? No, I don't believe it's too late. Uh, it's never too late. But there are some things that the unions are doing which I don't think are helpful. For example, you have several health unions. You've got the BMA, the RCN, GMB, Unite and Unison. But they don't seem to be coordinating any industrial action, which seems to me, very odd. If you wanted to be unsuccessful, well, that's how you do it. Have separate, small industrial action. So why they're not coordinating seems very odd. I believe some of the health unions didn't even ballot their nurse members for strike action. Uh, as you said, the RCN in their history have never gone on strike. Uh, they have a, a mandate to go on strike. But already we see the, uh, the leader of the RCN, Pat Cullen, giving away her negotiating position, saying, we, although we demanded 19%, we're happy to accept 10%. Now, this is madness. You don't, you don't start breaking your own arms in a battle yeah. with government. So it does worry me. But, uh, you know, I've been here before. I followed very closely, certainly what the British Medical Association been up to since I was, um, you know, became active and aware of what was going on to the NHS which is the overarching goal of privatization. And back in 2012, there was significant concern amongst uh, doctor members of the BMA 
to fight the 2012 Act, which was a major piece of privatization uh, legal, legal change. But the BMA and the leadership of the BMA persuaded the, the doctors not to do any action, not to do any effective action. And then we had almost a repeat performance in 2016 when the junior doctors balloted for strike action and overwhelmingly supported industrial action only to be let down and sabotaged by our union. So, you know, I am hopeful, but I don't blindly trust the leaderships of these organizations because, you know, as we've discussed before, there's, there's often a gap between the leaderships and the memberships. And, you know, we've all seen how that's played out in the Labour Party, where you had two general elections sabotaged by a faction within the Labour Party. Well, these factions exist in all organizations, and I'm yet to be convinced that our, our health unions are sincere in what they're attempting to do. I mean, I remember the uh, health strikes in the 19, early 1980s after Margaret Thatcher came to power. I mean, that was when the rot, it seems to me, started. But obviously, new Labour took it on, and uh, you know, things have didn't get any well. I've got to say, things didn't get any better. I mean, when, when Labour left office, satisfaction, according to polls anyway, was had never been higher in the National Health Service. But people like Patricia Hewitt and others, when they were Health uh, Secretary, I mean, they did some incredibly damaging uh, uh, things, didn't they, to the NHS in terms of the sort of policy direction that, that they took. I wonder whether you could say a bit about that. And what do the unions say about it when, you know, they were enabling the sort of, the, the sort of externalisation, privatisation agenda? Well, it's, it's almost as if the unions went to sleep because they had a Labour government. Um, and what Tony Blair and Gordon Brown did was actually embed the marketization. They were the first to outsource clinical services, such as routine operations. But Patricia Hewitt um, did get some resistance from the unions. So she actually cooked up a deal with the unions called the Social Partnership Forum. And what that effectively did was get the unions to get in bed with NHS management and agree that they won't fight the labor reforms. Now that agreement is still in place and was reinforced uh, prior to the passing of the most recent legislation, what I believe is the final legislation required to get us to the American system, which passed in July of last year, uh, the Health and Care Act 2022, which creates 42 new public-private entities called integrated care systems which effectively, in law, transform our NHS into a denationalized series of business units. Now, what will that mean, Bob, for, for staff then and, and for patients, these integrated care units? And uh, maybe you could say a word about these sustainability and transformation partnerships uh, as well, if they are. Yeah, there are, it's gone through multiple acronyms and, and, and renaming and rebranding, but the final destination is the same. We have created a system which will allow the American private health insurance uh, devised system of managed care. In order to make profit out of a managed care system, number one, you've got to keep the wage bill down. So that's where the staff come in. So you have to suppress the wages. You have to fight every wage demand. And you also have to de-skill the, uh, the staff. So you employ the cheapest, least qualified staff. Now, Clearly, that will have major patient safety implications. You can imagine if you don't have adequate staff, adequately trained, 
in under-resourced uh, departments, then patients will unnecessarily be harmed and die. So that's the problem with the de-skilling agenda. And the other way to make money out of a managed care system is through the denial of care, because the funding arrangements are what are called capitation arrangements. You get paid a fixed sum for a population of two to three million, and any money you don't spend on patient care provision, you can siphon away as profit. Mm. I mean, obviously you saying that the, the trade unions have, have perhaps been asleep at the wheel a bit, but but uh, what about the, um, you know, the official opposition and, uh, you know, the Labour Party since uh, Jeremy Corbyn stepped down? I mean, where are they in relation to these reforms? And what would you say about their position in terms of the demands of the trade unions with regard to these pay disputes at the moment? Yeah, so West Streeting and Starmer have signalled very loudly that they don't automatically uh, support any industrial action. They have sanctioned MPs who've turned up on picket lines. So they've shown that they are not the party for the workers quite clearly. In terms of policy, they have also spelt out that they believe in public-private partnership. They believe in our friends in the private sector out of their good nature coming to help us with the waiting list, which, which is total poppycock, this is exactly the same uh, framing that Alan Milburn used in 2000 when he brought in the private sector, what he called then a concordat with the private sector, sold to, as, sold to us as a temporary fix to get the waiting list down. Well, it was never temporary. It was never the intention. It was a way of beginning the slow drift of provision of NHS publicly funded care into the private sector, where Streeting and Starmer are going to double down on conservative, well, neoliberal policy of the last four decades. There will be no change. Well, what, what do you think the next step should be then for the trade unions uh, and maybe grassroots members, if, if you're suggesting, which I think you are, that the leadership are, you know, have not led as effective as it could have done? I mean, are there things that the grassroots can do. I mean, what, what should the next steps be for grassroots members for, for you know, for the leadership of the, of the trade union movement in this in this initial dispute here? Because there are two things really, I suppose, Bob, aren't it? There's the dispute the presenting at, that we're presenting at the moment, which I think is focused on salary, but there's a wider underlying issue, isn't it? Which obviously you've been campaigning about and you've been touching on this evening. I mean, if we if if we if we can't deal with the underlying problems, does that negate the ability to deal with the 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 top line issue at the moment, which is, which is pay? I mean, so what's your thoughts in regard to that? Yeah, I think I think it's a utter mistake to separate the two, because the reason the reason the pay is under threat or or it has been shrunk for the last decade is to facilitate privatisation. What worries me is none of the unions are making this quite simple point, which is. They want a cheap, malleable, precarious workforce, which will provide inferior quality of care, a, a shrinking uh, capacity of care to drive you into the private sector. Now, the vast majority of the public would be alarmed to hear that case being made, and that would boost public support for industrial action, because even amongst Tory voters, 70% of them believe the NHS should not be privatised. So politically, this is an open goal for the unions to make the case that their dispute 
is about patient safety and maintaining a public health service. Why the hell do they not make this argument? It seems to me very, very odd. It seems, it's a no-brainer in my book. In terms of the members, unfortunately, they all suffer with a union leadership-imposed ignorance. None of them understand what is happening in their name. You know, I, I sent you an article before, before we started this program written yeah. by a policy analyst, Stuart Player, who also wrote a book back in, the, I think, 2013-14 called The Plot Against the NHS, which he set out New Labour's record on the NHS, a PFI, the, the outsourcing, and the managerial changes which allow the privatisation to progress. He set all that out, and he, met, he paints quite clearly that the health unions at the moment are just doing, performing to the gallery in terms of their position statements, and they are not explaining what's really going on to their members or to the public. And they have, they have very large bank accounts, they have millions to spend on PR, yet they refuse to make the case. And that's why I worry about the leaderships uh, leading the members down the garden path to failed industrial action, industrial action which won't restore their wages. And let's not forget how the inflation works. Unless we go into a deflationary spiral, the 10% inflation that people have to cope with now remains forever. Even mm. if inflation comes down to 2%, they haven't gained back that 10% um, value in their pocket because their wages haven't kept up with it. So, mm. you know, this, this commitment to lower inflation doesn't make up for the loss of the uh, buying power of their relatively shrunken salaries. Mm. I mean, do you think, I mean, the union leadership, uh, you know, of Mr. Trick. I mean, what, what do you, what do you, how is that? I mean, what, what, how does, how would, how, how do we account for that? I mean, are they not being lobbied by campaign groups, people like yourself? I mean, the, the information's out there, isn't it? What, why do you think it is that the trade union leadership hasn't picked it up in the way well, you would thought they would have done? Yeah, I think um, they're listening to the wrong people. If you look at, if you have an understanding of how all this privatization lobby work, they they get their messaging through supposedly independent think tanks like the Nuffield Trust and the King's Fund. Mm -hmm. Now, if the unions go to these uh, in name only independent think tanks and are briefed by these people, well, they will come away with no understanding of what the real intent of the policies are. I know from experience that some of the people advising the unions are not painting the picture of the American corporate takeover. Um, and unfortunately, I've tried over the years numerous times to try and get access to speaking and to brief the leaderships. I've got nowhere. In fact, I was due to speak at a Unite meeting several, a, a few years ago, uh, only to find out that uh, it was cancelled by uh, Unite members in London who didn't want me speaking to their members. Now, now, and that's also happened by the RCN. So I was due to speak at an R RCN Zoom meeting. Uh, they did a, a pre-meeting pre chat with me and I made clear what I was going to say. And suddenly my services were not required. So there is at some level within these institutions, whether it be organizational or down to individuals, a conscious effort to make sure that this message doesn't get through to the leaders and doesn't get through to their members. 
do you think the Enough is Enough campaign uh, might be a vehicle that could draw attention to these issues, not just the issue around the cost of living and how that's affecting workers in the NHS and the wider economy, but these other underlying uh, issues which are, are, you know, are driving this whole agenda are going to make it very difficult in the future for, for workers in the health service to get a fair deal. Absolutely. So I, I've uh, attended a couple of Enough's Enough uh, rallies. I've listened to Mick Lynch. Interestingly, uh, Mick Lynch was invited to speak at a BMA rally, which was very encouraging. That's the first time uh, since I've been a BMA member they've had somebody as clear speaking and pro-worker as Mick Lynch. So, so that was some positive news. Um, I'm disappointed that Unite are not part of this Enough's Enough campaign, from what I understand. Uh, but certainly the messaging coming from the RMT leadership is a lot clearer and a lot more penetrating into the public consciousness than compared to the health unions, I'm afraid. Do you think one of the issues could be the merging of trade unions, whereby unions are now responsible for a much wider area of activity and maybe some of the specialisms that the smaller unions officials presumably would have had uh, has been lost because you know, in the old days when you had smaller unions, the, the officials that came through had actually, you know, by and large worked on the shop floor, so they had first-hand experience, whereas now we've got these very big entities um, and, you know, take Unite, for example, I mean, that what they cover, I mean, it's enormous, isn't it? You know, health workers, engineering workers, car workers, you know, street cleaners. I mean, it's, it's, it's a massive area. I mean, could that be where the problem lies, maybe, or what? Yeah, I think there's certainly um, room for, for understanding that the more bloated a bureaucracy becomes, the more diverse its uh, representation, then you get a dilution. And you, you get this corporatization of the leadership. So they are no longer responsive to the needs of their members. Um, they're getting advice, as I say, from uh, these groups that are not representing the public interest. For example, the big four accountancy firms who do a lot of consultancy work. And where do these big organizations go for analysis and consultancy? They go to the big four. They go to Deloitte. They go to KPMG, Ernst & Young, uh, PricewaterhouseCooper the very people who have enabled the privatization of our public services. So, so there's a problem of who they speak to. There's a problem of becoming very corporate. There's a problem of, you know, the internal politics and careerism. So you take your eye off the ball. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of these union leaders won't be short for, you know, having to struggle to access medical care, but most of their members will. And if you're, if you're making an argument uh, that cost of living is such a crisis. Well, add on top of that inability to access healthcare, and then you get sick. Then you lose your job. Then you lose your house. Then you're on the street. Now, if that's not a union battle, I don't know what is. Mm. There's got to be uh, a, a way, though. I said there's got to be, as we were saying earlier on in the conversation this evening, um, in terms of you know what we can do, what grassroots individuals can do, the support. For industrial action is is huge across the general public and support for 
health workers in particular is, um, you know, it's just in the kind of high sort of 70, 80 odd percent, isn't it, uh, of the public? I mean, how can we, in your opinion, harness that goodwill that there is to, you know, force change? Well, well, I've seen I've seen change occur in a relatively short time amongst the uh, junior doctor committee of the BMA. So, so you know, a group got together, made it very clear that they weren't happy with how they were let down in 2016, made it clear that they want pay restoration, and organised for people to get onto the committee. They got organised. They realised that they're going to, you know, if people weren't representing them well, they'll have to step up to the mark. But that came from an understanding of what the what the issues really were. And they know that if, if the pay is not restored, they will continue to hemorrhage colleagues out of the NHS. But part of that is to understand the big picture. Now, you know, union members up and down the country, you know, might not have the time and the energy to try and get their head around what's going on. But if they don't, I'm afraid they cannot effectively put pressure on their leaders. So there is an education process to be done. You know, I would definitely recommend the article written by Stuart Player uh, in terms of how the unions, the health unions in particular, are not doing what they should. And armed with that information, only then can you scrutinise and hold to account your yeah. union leaders, your union representatives. And if they're not up to the job and they can't explain uh, the holes that uh, Stuart Player points out, then you need to replace them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what, what's that? You know, a quote from Plato: "If you're not prepared to engage in politics, be prepared to be le led by your inferiors." And we have an epidemic of inferior political and union leadership. Yeah, I know. Indeed, I mean, I think that is a real tragedy. But I mean, I think people like Sharon Graham, um, you know, have started articulating concerns about privatisation, obviously concerns about the implications in terms of, of, of salary for staff and the cost of living crisis, et cetera, but, but more broadly than that, uh, have started to articulate uh, concerns about this privatisation uh, agenda. But uh, this comes back to my first question, really. I mean, uh, you know, is it too little too late? And, uh, you know, the fact that they maybe are, you know, beginning to kind of acknowledge that this is, a, is an issue. I mean, is, is it possible for them to sort of... Uh, you know, get up to speed and, and start doing something um, concrete about, about this agenda, or has, or has this agenda gone too far now? No, I think absolutely. There's, you know, there's every every chance to change, the, totally change the dynamic. But, I, you know, I heard Sharon Graham interview on Sky News where she said, I'm worried there might be privatisation going on. Now, that doesn't show me a grasp of where we are. All the legislation has gone through we have new public-private partnerships. We're going to have a loss of national bargaining. We're going to have staff contracts decimated. They're going to be made precarious. Their place of work will be shifted around. The privatization ship has sailed. What we need mm -hmm. to be talking about now is renationalization. There's no more fear of some potential privatization. It's already done. Mm -hmm. Renationalization, coordinated action between all the health unions working together joining the Enough's Enough campaign and pushing for real, effective political representation, which we don't have in Starmer's Labour Party. Well, that is an absolute fact. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the entire front bench and probably the entire parliamentary Labour Party are uh, really 
you know, not not fit for uh, for purpose. But what about the TUC? Uh, I mean, where, where are they? But they've traditionally been a lumbering sort of uh, uh, hopeless uh, entity, really. I mean, right back from the national uh, from the national uh, general strike in 1926. But I mean, you know, can we look to the TUC for any leadership on on this? Do you think? Uh, I I haven't seen it. So far, um, you know, I was disappointed to to hear that the TUC, I think, uh, supported a vote to expand funding for the arms trade, for example. That was in the last, that was a big headline I managed to grab from their last uh, conference or AGM or whatever you call it. But so I don't think that will come from the TUC. They're too far removed. They tend to be very weak in their response. They tend to sit on the fence and use language which doesn't quite hit the spot. We, we need more Mick Lynchers. We need people who talk directly to the public, make things uh, simple, don't overcomplicate it, don't lose people, but at the same time, do not pull any punches. The working class have been screwed for the last 40 years, and they're, they're on the precipice of losing, you know, the... the foundation of the welfare state which is access to health care mm -hmm. and the response i've seen so far although in some elements encouraging certainly with the recent changes in the british medical association and the junior doctor committee uh, whose vote for industrial action should be coming through in the next week or two but some of the rhetoric is just not um, up to scratch i'm afraid it's too weak and it gives the impression of some hypothetical threat in the future, which mm -hmm. actually has already occurred, you know? So the house is on fire. Um, we need to not arm ourselves with water pistols. And that no. seems to be what's going on. But maybe a first step, Bob, uh, in this uh, fight back uh, might be winning these, uh, this pay dispute, notwithstanding what you're saying about the, the RCN sort of seemingly capitulating before they've kind of reached first base camp. But I mean, could, that, that, that could be a, uh, or, or could it, I don't know, could that be a catalyst, do you think? If, if they can succeed there, could that be the, the, the catalyst to, you know, start to push back against, or at least like, raise consciousness about what's going on? Because a lot of people are just not aware, are they, about, you know, all this stuff that's been happening under the, under the surface, as it were? Yeah, I think if, if, for example, the junior doctors win their pay dispute, then that will be massive encouragement for others. Mm. All, all mm. the more reason for the government to pull out all the stops to defeat them, right? So, of course, yeah. Is the you know the unions, you know, I don't know whether you can come up with a reason for all the health unions taking separate separate days of action. Does that make any sense to you? So, coordinate action, um, agree, have some agreed goals, and the narrative needs to include the threat to the health service. I think it's self defeating presenting all your arguments as the poor staff aren't earning enough. Mm. Because the whole of the country is not earning enough. No, exactly. So you've got to link the fight for earnings to the ability to provide safe, high-quality services and to stop money being siphoned off by insurance companies and private providers and hidden offshore in tax havens, because that's the battle we're fighting. Mm. Yes, indeed. And I, I'm sure, and you'll know with you, in your work, uh, Bob, I'm sure, in terms of, you know, low pay, poverty has huge health implications as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. So, you know, what we have what are called diseases of despair, depression, 
alcoholism, uh, chronic stress leading to heart disease, you know, diabetes, all these things, obesity, chronic stress is a killer. And if you don't know how you're going to pay your bills and pay the mortgage, there couldn't be any worse chronic stress. And just imagine not being able to afford to feed your children well, you know, or provide heating for them. So yeah. this is this is what's reducing people's life expectancy, dealing with the uh, the effects of a decade of austerity and 40 years of neoliberalism, with mm. pensions being destroyed, job security gone, weakened unions, um, and wage stagnation. You know, the the proportion of GDP back in back in the 70s that was spent on wages was 65%, and the proportion now is 50%. So yeah. where has all that wealth gone? That wealth well, we, is being. I think, we know, I, I think we know where it's where it's gone yeah. in the pockets of the uh, of the. Uh, you know the 0.1 percent, but look, I mean, obviously we're we're coming up towards a general election, Bob. Um, it seems likely, in spite of its uh, appalling uh, uh, record in opposition since Sir Keir Starmer took over, that the Labour Party are on course to to win that. Now, obviously, all that some of us will be trying to ensure that we we give people another alternative. But if we're realistic, it, it, the odds are looking likely that we'll have a Sir Keir Starmer. Premiership, and you talk about forty years of of neoliberalism, and a lot of that was under the Tories. But obviously, at least thirteen years, well, the whole neoliberal agenda actually started with uh, with Dennis Healy going into going to the International Monetary Fund. But we'll put that to aside for for a moment. Thirteen years of uh, new Labour. But the point I was just making, though, Bob, um, earlier on in the discussion this evening was that when Labour, New Labour left office in 2010, satisfaction in the NHS was very, very high. But a lot of these reforms had, 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 had you know, been taking shape under the, under the surface, as it were. Um, how do you account for that? That's, that's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it, there? There was kind of satisfaction in the NHS, and yet they were still pursuing the sort of neoliberal agenda in relation to the uh, health service. I mean, that's a... That's a an interesting um, issue, isn't it? I mean, how, how is it that they would, you know, that the, 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 you know, waiting this seems to come down, people seem to be satisfied and happy with the NHS, and yet we know from what the likes of uh, various health ministers were doing that uh, they were actually effectively undermining the very fabric of the NHS, weren't they? Yeah, well, let me give you one example, bed capacity and private finance initiative. So, you have the Conservative government, Thatcher Major, running down NHS estate, cooking up this scheme of private finance initiative. Then Labour comes along and turns on the spending taps and introduces private finance initiative to build and replace dilapidated hospitals. But for every one they built, they could have built two for the same money. We had, in fact, the biggest contraction of bed capacity in the Blair Brown years. And we had the transfer of ownership from public ownership of hospitals to private ownership of hospitals. So the money went in. They pump primed uh, the building, but that was using private finance. So we have a liability of 2 billion a year. The chickens are coming home to roost because when the PFI was first set up, the payments were not too significant, but over time, the payments got more and more onerous. And that means yeah. you know, you know, PFI debt is protected. And how do you pay that? Well, you cut services. So 
they set down, you know, time bombs, financial time bombs with very long fuses. So they got away with uh, services did improve, waiting lists came down. But how did they get the waiting list down? They subsidized private sector profits to provide the care, right? Yeah. So nobody's denying services did improve. But you had a transfer of ownership, you had a transfer of control, and you had an embellishing of the managerial toxicity and bureaucracy that is required to see this through to the end game, which we're you know, rapidly approaching. So, you know, it's a bit of a tag team. You have one government starving the service and the other pumping in the money. But if you look closely enough, look at what's happened to the control and look where that money's going. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a Trojan horse, really. I mean, I, know, I remember when I was uh, first elected to Parliament in 2010 and was railing against things like um, uh, tuition fees and, uh, you know, NHS sort of uh, privatisation, etc. And, uh, um, you know, academy schools and so on and so forth. I mean, and the Tory riposte was always, well, it's all very well for the Honourable Gentleman saying X, Y and Z, but it was the... Last Labour government that, that you know to these these when you know what do you do it took the wind out of yourselves they absolutely right it did I mean obviously when Jeremy Corbyn came along we were able to say we're under we are under new management now but we couldn't really say that uh, when Ed Miliband was a leader because he was you know, he was part of the cabinet that was doing some of that stuff but listen Bob thanks for, for coming on there tonight it's been another really interesting discussion hopefully um, giving people food for thought where can people follow you on social media if they want to sort of keep up with the campaign that you campaigns that you're involved with yeah so it's it's mostly on twitter uh, at dr bob gill um i also support a campaign called uh your nhs needs you so i provide advice to them um if they go to youtube and look up the great nhs heist there are lots of videos and materials on there and there's an accompanying website uh, your uh, the great nhs heist.com so there's a lot lots of material there there's enough there to keep people busy particularly if you know some union members health union members want to learn a bit more about what, what we've discussed tonight then there's there's lots of resources there yeah great that's great well thanks again bob for coming on uh more power to your elbow mate and uh, hopefully uh between us we can actually start to to turn this thing around thanks everybody for watching again this evening we'll be back next week hopefully at seven o'clock on Wednesday on Resistance TV. So until then, good night.